That was kind of a funny issue with the uh, identity of our, of our person leading our prayers, because it, it looked like Jack Holby, our associate minister of discipleship, but it said Rachel White on the screen, because we didn't notate that, but it was actually Moses who's here for VBS, so... <laughs> Uh, it's good to be with you today. I'm excited about today and about this week. Um, as you can tell, I just I love VBS, and so I'm, I'm dressed up for it. And um, today we're continuing in the sermon series we've been doing this summer, which is called What Does the Bible Say About? And the purpose of this sermon is to give you all an opportunity to ask us questions about what the Bible says about whatever is interesting to you, whatever you want to know about. And so you have a slip in your bulletin that you can fill out and you can drop in one of the receptacles in the back of the sanctuary to submit a question. Please continue to fill those out because um, we'd like to hear more from you. And as we get repeated requests, that helps us narrow down which ones we're going to talk about. Um, the last couple of sermons we've done that you've, you guys have been really hitting major subjects. So we talked about um, women in leadership. We talked about grace. And this week we're talking about the end times, uh, which will be, I'm, I'm looking forward to it. And on our, the ones that we don't cover in our sermon series, we cover in our live broadcasts on Thursdays on Facebook and YouTube. This last week, Jack and I got a chance to talk about self-care. The question was, um, is there, do Christians have a moral obligation to take care of their bodies and to have, you know, health and, and those kinds of things? And, and so we've got to talk about that. And... Um, so, this has been a really fun series, so please continue to submit those cards in the receptacles in the back. Today we're talking about the end times, which is another weighty subject, and it actually, this one kind of comes and goes. It's interesting. It, 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 there are times when it's a really big deal, and times when it's not as big of a deal. Right now, I think we're in a time when it's less of a big deal, but I know in the 70s, it was a really big deal in the 80s, you know, there are, there, and, and you can go back throughout church history, and there are times when it's been a huge deal, and everybody's talked about it, and everybody's been arguing about it, and had very sophisticated theories about it, and other times when it's just not to the forefront of people's minds. Um, but, and when we talk about it, we also tend to get re a really diverse set of answers about what the Bible says about the end times. And it's also, it's a really prominent thing that non-Christians know about what Christians believe. Like, they know about that Christians believe the world is going to end and they don't even know certain things about it. And they'll make movies about, Christ, you know, how the end of the world and stuff like that. Um, and as we argue about it, as we delve into it, we end up with a lot of different approaches. So, for instance, you can, when you go to seminary, you learn how to categorize these. For some reason, this one stuck for me. Um, you can go idealist, preterist, futurist. You could separate as amillennial, premillennial, postmillennial. And then the premillennial branch really, really branches out because then you've got um, classical premillennial and dispensational premillennial. And then you've got pre-tribulation dispensational premillennial, mid-tribulation dispensational premillennial, and post-tribulation dispensational premillennial. Um, those are all different ways to put together the way, what the Bible says about the end times. And there are times in, in which those, those divisions are really, really hard lines. Like, we, we really don't get along well with people who pick a different branch in those, those decisions. And I'm not going to explain to you what all of those mean. Um, but, 
Um, there is another rising view that is becoming more and more common as I talk to people about the end times, and it may be actually the prevailing perspective now. And it's called, uh, some people call it pan-millennialism. And pan-millennialism says, I don't know how it all fits together, but it's going to pan out in the end. Right? Like, I just, I'm, I'm not going to bother with it. I, I don't understand Revelation. I don't even. I, I know a lot of pastors who are pan millennialists. Ne- I've had pastors tell me I'm probably never going to preach through Revelation in my life. Um, maybe, maybe the first few chapters where there's those letters that Jesus dictates to the different churches, those are easy to preach through. But the rest of it is just all these visions of monsters and angels and stars and, and all this crazy stuff that's really hard to put together, and it just crosses your eyes. And I, I am very sympathetic with pan-millennialism. I absolutely am. And I think it's, pan-millennialism gets the gist of it. That is the gist. That's the point. But I think God told us more for a reason. And so I think there is a reason why this material is in the Bible. And this material, this, the way the Bible talks about the end times is this special way of writing that we don't do anymore. It's called apocalyptic writing. Now, we, think the, we tend to use the word apocalypse to mean the end of the world. But actually, the word apocalypse is just a Greek word for revelation. So apocalyptic writing is writing that reveals something through the way it's written. All these images and visions that we see, that's apocalyptic writing. You've got the book of Revelation, Daniel, Zechariah has a lot of uh, apocalypse in it, and actually some of the parables of Jesus are apocalypses. And so this is something that comes up a lot in the Bible, but it's very foreign to us. And so we have to be, we're doing two things with the series. One, we're answering the question in the title, but two, we're also learning how to read the Bible. How, so we're specifically going to talk about how to read apocalyptic writing, all these visions of monsters and beasts and all that stuff. Okay? But before we do that, I wanted to talk about the question behind the question. Why is this in the Bible? Because God put it there intentionally. He wanted it to be there. And so it's not something we can just say, ah, we'll skip that. Don't worry about it. Um, there is material in there that matters. So let's talk about why did God, uh, why is this in the Bible? What question does it answer? And if you look throughout church history at the time when interest in end t- the end times has peaked, it's always at times when the wheels seem to be coming off the world. It's always at times when things seem to the person who's focused on the end times, the world seems to be going out of control from their perspective. Right? In the 70s, it was, it was a difficult time in terms of geopolitics. It was really threatening with... Um, with the, the Cold War and with the economy, there were a lot of things that were going ba- uh, badly. You know, as you look back, there was a, a small spike uh, when COVID started uh, that people started saying, oh, maybe this is a sign of the end times because they weren't expecting COVID and the wheels started to come off. And if you, if you line up, like, there's actually a pretty good correspondence between end times, uh, uh, what's the word I'm looking for? Um, people focusing on the end times. Um, speculation, there we go. End time speculation and like economic depression. It's interesting how that coordinates. And so that, that tells us something about what apocalyptic writing is for. It comes up when God is, we know that God is supposed to be in control, but it doesn't always look like he is. We believe that God is all powerful and that he is good and he is leading things to a good end, but there are times when we think, when it doesn't look like it to us. And in fact, if you look back through the history of Scripture and you identify when God sent these messages, it's in the times when for the people of God, in the biblical narrative, it most looked like the wheels were coming off. So Daniel is given these visions during the exile. 
and specifically when the exile is starting to go on longer than they were told it was going to. Because God said he's going to send them back in 70 years, and some of them got to go back, but they didn't all get to go back, and the king didn't come back. And so Daniel is speaking to this time when they're like, hey, is God even still around? Is he actually still in charge? The same thing is happening with John. John is writing the Revelation. He receives these visions at a time when Christians are saying, this isn't really going the way we thought it was. Like, Jesus hasn't come back yet. We thought he might come back already. Um, and, and the Roman Empire is doing a lot of horrible things to us that we didn't think they'd be able to do because we thought it was all going to go rosy after Jesus came. Uh, and so, so that's what these tend to speak to is those times when, when the world isn't going according to plan. And I don't know where that is for you, how you judge when the world is going, when the wheels are coming off. It could be based on who's in the governor's mansion. It could be based off of who's in the White House. You can make that decision based off how the economy is going, or how your marriage is going, or the situation in your home. For all of us, we have this different way that we kind of measure when the wheels are coming off, and that's when we start to worry. And that's what this is supposed to speak to. And there's two things that we really want to know when the wheels are coming off. Number one, we want to know that things are going according to plan. And number two, we want to know our role in that plan. Okay? We want to know that things are actually in control. And we want to know, what am I supposed to do? Because I need to be able to do something. I need to know how to take action as my world is in chaos. And the truth is that God speaks to us to answer these questions. Apocalyptic writing does actually give us answers to these questions. It confirms to us that the plan is still going, and it tells us what we're supposed to do. So what we're going to do now is we're going to look at how apocalyptic writing answers these questions, but I'm going to need to teach you a couple of principles. There's actually a lot of things you need to know to really get everything out of apocalyptic writing. It's a very strange form of writing that we just... Actually, the closest equivalent we have... Oh, I said comic books in first service, but it's not comic books, it's political cartoons. Political cartoons are the closest thing we have to apocalyptic writing, but I don't have time to explain that to you, so you'll have to ask later. Um, But we just don't have this kind of writing. So I'm going to teach you a couple things to help you read Apocalypse. Here's the first thing you need to know. In seminary, this blew my mind. First day of Revelation class blew my mind, and just the whole class went different because I learned this. The Bible uses complex, repeated images to drive home simple points about the future. As you read Revelation, you get a whole bunch of crazy images and all these different things. There's like there's se- there's a, a, a scroll with seven seals, and every time a seal is broken, something happens. And then there's seven trumpets, and every time a trumpet is blown, something happens. And there's seven bowls, and every time a bowl is poured out, something happens. And there's weird places where it pauses, and things happen in between all this. And there's like all this crazy stuff. And trying to make sense of that can get very complicated. Uh, in fact, what we usually end up with is something like this. And you may have gone to a speaker who was going to explain to you the end times and you saw a chart that was very complicated. And I think charts like this are the number one uh, cause in, that induces pan-millennialism. If you look at these and you just your eyes get twisted, like, I'm going to stick to the Gospels because I don't need a chart like this to understand the Gospels. Jesus is pretty simple, but Revelation gets crazy. And I'm going to tell you that if, if the charts like this are keeping you from reading Revelation, then just don't don't throw out the baby with the bathwater. Just get rid of the charts. Because you don't actually need the charts to understand what Revelation is saying. Because here's an important principle. that The point of all of the images that go through in Revelation is not to give you a complicated portrait like this. It's to reiterate several simple themes. 
And I'll show you, this is a, something that goes throughout Scripture whenever God uses visions to reveal the future. Who's the first person who used visions to reveal the future in the Bible? Joseph. Joseph has dreams as a kid, and he has two dreams. One is of uh, his, uh, his uh, brother's wheat bowing down to his, and the next one is the sun, moon, and stars bowing down to him, and both of them mean that he's going to one day be prominent, and his brothers and his parents are going to bow down to him. It ends up being true, but they don't like it, so they sell him into slavery. And he goes down into Egypt, and then the Pharaoh has two dreams. And the two dreams mean the exact same thing. One of them is these ears of corn. There's fat ones that get eaten by the skinny ones, and the skinny ones are still skinny. And then there's fat cows that get eaten by skinny cows, and they're still skinny. And again, don't have time to tell you what it means, but the point is, two dreams mean the exact same thing. Why does God repeat the dreams? Well, Joseph tells Pharaoh... The reason the dream was given to Pharaoh in two forms is that the matter has been firmly decided by God, and God will do it soon. In the biblical narrative, repeated dreams, they don't stack on top, they underline the same thing. So, every single apocalyptic writer in the Bible, this, this happens with them. So, for instance, if you know Daniel really well, you may know that he has a vision of a statue. In fact, you can see the statue on the top left there, and it has four different parts, and each part is a different kingdom. Well, later he has a vision of four different beasts, and each beast is a different kingdom. It's the same four kingdoms, and both visions tell the same story. The same thing happens when you get into um, Zechariah. His visions, they tend to double up. When you get into the apocalyptic um, parables that Jesus tells, he tends to tell two parables. And when you look at all of them and you piece them together, you realize, okay, parable six actually is telling the same thing as parable eight. And parable one is the same as parable four. And he does this where they repeat the image, and it's to make it clear this is true. God's determined to do this. This isn't just a whim. It's going to happen. And so all these repeated images through Revelation, they're not meant to give you 21 different judgments. They're meant to give you three versions of the same sequence of events. So what I'm going to do now is I'm going to give you the entire content of Revelation in terms of the plan for the future, and I'm not even going to read from Revelation. I'm going to read one paragraph from the Gospels because Jesus tells the disciples the plan for the future in one paragraph, and then Revelation just riffs on that for 22 chapters. Okay? Here's, here's the summary of what's going to happen in between, the res- the, between the ascension of Jesus and the end times. Watch out that no one deceives you. For many will come in my name claiming I am the Messiah and will deceive many. You will hear of wars and rumors of wars, but see to it that you are not alarmed. Such things must happen, but the end is still to come. Nation will rise against nation and kingdom against kingdom. There will be famines and earthquakes in various places. All these are the beginnings of the birth pains. Then you will be handed over to be persecuted and put to death, and you will be hated by all nations because of me. At that time, many will turn away from the faith and will betray and hate each other, and many false prophets will appear and deceive many people. Because of the increase of wickedness, the love of most will grow cold, but the one who stands firm to the end will be saved. And this gospel of the kingdom will be preached in the whole world as a testimony to all nations, and then the end will come. Jesus goes on to talk more, but everything else he says is commentary on what he's just said. There's four things that happen in this paragraph, and everything that happens in Revelation fits, and and the prophecies of Daniel and Zechariah, really, they fit into these four buckets. Okay? These four themes. The first theme is human sin will cause widespread destruction. 
this, these images, there are repeated images that show you that human sin is going to cause destruction in the world. So, for instance, let's talk about the four horsemen of the apocalypse. This is a famous image from Revelation. So the first seal is broken, and a, a rider on a white horse comes out, and he represents conquest, and he goes out to conquer. And then the second seal is broken, and another horse, horseman comes out. He's riding a red horse, and he, he brings war with him. And then the third one, the third seal is broken, and the third rider comes out, and he brings famine and pestilence with him on a black horse. And then the fourth seal is broken, and the, the horseman on a pale horse comes out, and he brings death. And we may look at that as four separate judgments, right? That's all, like if you read Left Behind, those are four different judgments that happen. But here's the thing. Death is one of those judgments. Death is treated as something distinct. So, let me ask you this. How do you have conquest without war? Has there ever been a war that didn't bring with it pestilence and famine? Can you have conquest, war, or pestilence and famine without death? These are not sequential. These are four sides. Of, it's like looking at a diamond from different sides. He's illustrating the, the, the full range of the consequences of human destruction because it's really easy to cheer on the emperor as he goes out to conquer and say, hey, we just want dignity for our empire. But you realize that you bring conquest, that brings with it war. And war brings with it pestilence and famine. And the result of all of it is death. This is what human pride does when we go out to conquer others. And so there are repeated images of how human sin causes destruction, and that's what's being emphasized here. The next thing that happens that gets repeatedly emphasized is that God will send signs to call humanity to repentance. These usually take the, the form of natural disasters or signs in the heavens, basically things to show us that the world is not actually in our control. That we can't actually control the world, that we can't actually make the world the way we want it to be, that this whole experiment of taking charge of our own destinies is doomed to failure. Whether that's an earthquake or a meteor or whatever's going on, God sends signs that demonstrate either through natural disaster or just through their immensity that we are not in control. And it's meant to call us to repentance. And so you have this... this Throughout the time from Jesus, uh, from his first coming to the second coming, you have this time of human violence, of human sin causing destruction, and these signs are supposed to cause for repentance. And in the midst of this, the third thing that is always said in these apocalypses is that the church will testify through the chaos. In each one of these, this is emphasized, whether it's in Daniel talking about the holy ones who will stand up to the beast, whether it's Jesus um, saying that in, in that paragraph from Matthew 24, he talks about standing, being strong and, and not falling away. And repeatedly throughout Revelation, Jesus talks about this, or the visions talk about this. But the church is supposed to testify through the chaos to make it clear, to interpret for the world what's going on. That it's human sin that's causing the destruction, and these disasters, these signs are showing us that we're not in control. And ultimately, the last thing that happens is God will judge the world and establish his kingdom. Here's the pandemic. It's going to end. God's going to sort it out. And that's it. Those are the four categories, the four buckets. Everything you read in Revelation will fit into one of those buckets. And that's what you're supposed to get out of it. And I would argue, personally, I believe that what the Bible wants to be clear, what God wants to be clear, he makes clear. And if it isn't clear in Scripture, it's not meant to be clear. And that means, in my opinion, anything more, any interpretation of Revelation that is really more complicated than this is going beyond what we should expect people to get out of it. 
There are so many really specific things we could argue about that, that if, it were, if we were supposed to, it would be clearer. But God wrote this in a way that taps into our imaginations rather than our logic centers. And it taps into our heart. And, and, that's, and it's meant to, to communicate simple images. My dad used to tell me that Revelation was a special effects movie. Like it's big images that make a strong impression. And these are the things we're supposed to get out of it. So, that tells us the plan. But what we really need to know what we really need to know as, as believers is what are we supposed to do to live in that plan? And this is what Revelation is written to do, is to tell us what we're supposed to do. But in order to get our marching orders from Revelation, we have to know one more thing about how to read it. And this one's a bit tricky, so go with me here, because we, we kind of read Revelation backwards. And I, I, I need to recalibrate the way we look at it and the way we bring uh, Revelation into the modern day. Revelation uses vivid imagery to show us the true nature of the world around us. Revelation shows us the true nature of the world around us. Our temptation when we read Revelation is to read, to read Revelation and see modern events taking place in it. If you were around in the 70s for the late great planet Earth, that was the idea was you could read the modern newspaper, today's headlines, and find them in Revelation, and that was the point of the book. And that's often what will happen is people will start speculating and say, I think Jesus is coming back soon, because I'm seeing today's headlines come up in Revelation. And I'm going to tell you that I think that's backwards. I don't think that's how Revelation is meant to be written, read. Let me give you an example. I'm going to read you an, an image from Revelation uh, chapter 17, and just visualize it with me and see if you can decode who it is. One of the seven angels who had the seven bowls came and said to me, Come, I will show you the punishment of the great prostitute who sits on many waters. With her, the kings of the earth committed adultery, and the inhabitants of the earth were intoxicated with the wine of her adulteries. Then the angel carried me away in the spirit into a wilderness. There I saw a woman sitting on a scarlet beast that was covered with blasphemous names and had seven heads and ten horns. The woman was dressed in purple and scarlet and was glittering with gold, precious stones, and pearls. She had a golden cup in her hand filled with abominable things and the filth of her adulteries. The name written on her forehead was a mystery. Babylon the Great, the mother of prostitutes and of the abominations of the earth. I saw that, that the woman was drunk with the blood of God's holy people, the blood of those who bore testimony to Jesus. When I saw her, I was greatly astonished. What is that image supposed to show us? Is it the UN? Is it the Catholic Church? Is it the European Union? Typically what we want to know is what current group, body, person does this image point us to because the person or the body that is, uh, like the, the government is the real thing, right? The point is that we can look in there and see, oh yeah, that's the Catholic Church, right? Or, oh yeah, that's the, that's the, um, the, the UN, clearly. But that's not the point. Because if you had gone to the first century... Remember, this is written for a first century audience. So when you ask the first century audience, who is this? They would have said, oh, that's, that's the Roman Empire. And that's so obviously the Roman Empire. 
Seven hills, the, Roman, the city of Rome was built on seven hills. Scarlet and purple were its colors. The, the word Babylon, like Babylon was a ghost town at this point. The word Babylon was used by the early church to talk about. It wasn't a code. It wasn't a secret. Anybody who looked at this could have told that it was Rome. In fact, it's a parody of Roma, the patron goddess of Rome, who, who is the per- represents the city of Rome. But there was, this was not a puzzle. This was not a secret being kept from anyone. Even a non-Christian could have told what they, who was familiar with biblical imagery, would have known exactly what this is. The point isn't to be able to look in the Bible and see current events. The point is to be able to get, what he was trying to teach the the Christians of that day was not to see the Roman Empire in the Bible, but to see the beast from the Bible in the Roman Empire. The point is not to read the newspaper in the visions, but to see the visions in the world. The reality is the beast. The fact, the fact is, he doesn't want them to get seduced by Roma and the image of this peaceful kingdom that is uniting everybody through the wisdom of Caesar. He doesn't want them to see this, dig- this dignified woman idol that they're called to worship uh, when they go to the temple to bow down to Roma. He doesn't want them to see that. He wants them to see Roma for who she really is. For what the Roman Empire really is when the Roman Empire opposes God and kills, people and kills Christians and is a force against God, that she's not what she looks like in the marble and the stone. Rome is actually this image. This is the truth. That's why it's called revelation. It's not obscuring things with a puzzle. It is revealing the spiritual truth behind what we see. The flesh and blood that we see, the stone and marble that we see is the illusion. And what revelation shows us is the truth. There are beasts out there. There were beasts then, and there are beasts now. And we recognize beasts because they act like beasts, because they do the things that the beasts of Scripture do. So what we're supposed to do to understand our role, to see, to see the world through revelations, we're supposed to start seeing the visions in everyday life. So the first thing we need to do is we need to see ourselves in revelation. We need to be able to see these visions in the mirror. So here's the first thing that we learn from revelation. God's people live under his election and protection. I gave you an option there because election is a church word. So you just say selection. It means the same thing. But... You, what that means is, you are not here by accident. You are in God's people. You were expected. God knew you were coming. He was ready for you. He wanted you. He's got a plan for you, and he's going to protect you. And here's the image where we see that. Okay? I, the, one of the images. When, then I saw another angel coming up from the east, having the seal of the living God. He called out in a loud voice to the four angels who had been given power to harm the land and the sea. Do not harm the land or the sea or the trees until we put a seal on the foreheads of the servants of our God. Then I heard the number of those who were sealed, 144,000 from all the tribes of Israel. From the tribe of Judah, 12,000 were sealed. From the tribe of Reuben, 12,000. From the tribe of Gad, 12,000. Asher, Naphtali, Manasseh, Simeon, Levi, Issachar, Zebulon, Joseph, Benjamin, 12,000. Okay, now what does that image mean? This census of 144,000 people. Now, Jehovah's Witnesses will tell you that there's literally 144,000 people who get to go to heaven while the rest of us stay on earth. Um, other people will say that there is, that it's actually a census of, of Jews, of Israelites, that will be uh, protected during the end times. The problem there is that uh, there's two problems. Number one, th- there are only three tribes left. 
None of you knew that, but the ten tribes of the northern kingdom disappeared into the Assyrian Empire, and all the Israelites that are left are from Judah, Benjamin, or Levi. That's why we call them Jews, because they're from the kingdom of Judah. That's where the word comes from. So, ten of those tribes don't exist. Also, uh, these are not the twelve tribes of Israel. There is no tribe of Joseph. Joseph's kids, Ephraim and Manasseh, each got a tribe. And that's how they got twelve, because you don't normally count Levi. But Levi also got counted. And you know who's not there? Dan. Dan is a tribe that had a reputation for idolatry, and so John leaves them out. Because the point is not for this to be a literal group of people, but it's a, it's a census of God's perfect people, of the pure, the kingdom of God. Uh, these are the people that are doing it right. These are the people that God has chosen. There's a number. He knows how many there are. It is a perfect number because it's 12 times 12 times 1,000, which is the biggest number that they had a word for in Greek. So it's just like all of them. It's like the 12 times 12 times 1,000 is just all of them, right? They're all numbered. They're all named. They're all known. And they're all sealed. And that's you. So to see revelation in the world around you, the first thing you do is you look in the mirror and you see the seal of God's choice and protection on your forehead. God wants you. God was ready for you. God chose you. And he's going to protect you. Start seeing that seal. Because that's what you're supposed to see after you read this. Now, does that mean, okay, everything's going to go great. It's going to be fine. I'm protected. So there will be no problems in my life. Only if you don't read any of the rest of the book. You read any of the rest of the book, that illusion gets shattered pretty quickly. Because if we go on and we start reading about beasts, here's what we hear. Uh, the dragon, the dragon is, is Satan, is, is spiritual evil opposed to God. And it says the dragon was enraged and went off to wage war against those who keep God's commands and hold fast their testimony about Jesus. So the dragon's off for those 144,000, for the people that are faithful to God, right? And the dragon has lackeys. The first lackey is a beast who comes out of the sea. The beast was given a mouth to utter proud words and blasphemies and to exercise its authority for 42 months. It opened its mouth to blaspheme God and to slander his name and his dwelling place and those who live in heaven. Pause. 42 months. One of the things you get into in charts there is like it's seven years and you break it down like 42 and all these time periods. They're, they're symbolic numbers. 42 months is three and a half years. Seven, year, seven is complete. Three and a half is partial. That means it's a limited time. For a limited time only, the beast is given power to do all of these things. It was given power to wage war against God's holy people and to conquer them. And it was given authority over every tribe, people, language, and nation. All inhabitants of the earth will worship the beast, all, the, all whose names have not been written in the Lamb's Book of Life, the Lamb who was slain from the creation of the world. Now, again, so we didn't pull up all the imagery from the beast. The beast is also clearly the Roman Empire. Seven heads, ten horns. It's all the same imagery. This is also the Roman Empire at that time. And what this summarizes for them is the political power that has been amassed to oppose the people of God that has the authority to kill them, to take their freedom, to take their lives. And, it, and this is what they were experiencing. And what Christians have continued to experience, uh, not all the place all the time, but have continued to experience throughout time. That, that governments have the ability and God allows them to do this. And that's not against the plan. Right? But that, that is something that God allows the powers to do. And when they do that, they're being beasts. Right? This beast also has a lackey, the second beast, who, uh, the second beast was given power to give breath to the image of the first beast 
so that the image could speak and cause all who refused to worship the image to be killed. It also forced all people, great and small, rich and poor, free and slave, to receive a mark on their right hands or on their foreheads so that they could not buy or sell unless they had the mark, which is the name of the beast or the number of its name. I'm not going to get into the number of the beast and what that means. There actually is a pretty simple answer, but I'm not going to give it away today. If you'd like to talk about this, the number of the beast, feel free to contact me. Mark it on your connect card. You want to talk to the pastor? We'll get coffee. We'll talk. It'll be great. Not today. Um, but this beast, the second beast, basically has the, the religious and social and economic power to coerce people to serve and worship the first beast. Right? So they can, they can compel you to re- worship it as a religion. They also will compel you to say, hey, you can't, you can't trade in the marketplace. You can't buy food. You can't. There's all this pressure that is put on you from outside the government itself that tries to force you to conform. And the second piece represents all of that power that is also brought to bear on Christians. And so you see these images, and, and you can tell for the past 2,000 years, these forces have been active against Christians. You can identify it in different places in different times. It's been happening. This prophecy is easily proved true. So the question is, what are we supposed to do? What is our... Oh, I'm sorry. No, wait. The next line in our role is God will allow people, His people to face persecution and temptation from the beast. We talk a lot about persecution. What we don't talk about as much is temptation. The fact that the second beast puts pressure on us to give in, to worship the beast, to make concessions, to sell our integrity so that, we, so that life will go a little easier. You know, if I just worship the beast a little bit, then I'll get to, to work in the marketplace so I can get a better job or I can get my business off the ground or I can feed my family, or whatever that pressure is, right? We face temptation to give in. The question is, What are we supposed to do? How do we defeat the beast? What is the climactic battle between 144,000 and the beast? It doesn't happen. It's interesting. If you look in Daniel and you look in Revelation, they both kind of skip that part. There isn't a climactic face-off between the army, the 144,000, the people of God, and, and the beast. In Daniel, the beast is persecuting the people, and then all of a sudden, God just shows up and does away with the beast. And, and the people are raised up with God. Same thing in Revelation. So it talks about all the persecution of the beast against the people. And then here's the very next thing. And I looked, and there before me was the Lamb, standing on Mount Zion, and with him 144,000 who had his name and his father's name written on their foreheads. And I heard a sound from heaven like the roar of rushing waters and like a loud peal of thunder. The sound I heard was like that of harpists playing their harps. That's a huge musical number, right? That's singing and instruments. And they sang a new song before the throne and before the four living creatures and the elders. No one could learn the song except 144,000 who had been redeemed from the earth. These are those who did not defile themselves with women, for they remained virgins. They followed the Lamb wherever He goes. They were purchased from among mankind and offered as first fruits to God and the Lamb. No lie was found in their mouths. They are blameless. Notice they didn't fight, and yet they're singing their victory song. Why? Because their battle wasn't conquering the beast. Their battle was following the Lamb in a way that was blameless. Right? It says that they remained virgins. And what that's talking about is this idea in the ancient world, and, and this comes up with David, um, where, where you could be defiled um, if you... If you you know, been with your wife 
within a certain amount of time before you went into battle. You just weren't supposed to do it. And so, so there's a point at which David goes up to a priest and asks for food, and the, food, and the priest says, have you, kept your, have you kept your soldiers away from money? He says, yeah, we're fine. So he gives them the bread to eat. Right? It's, it's just this idea of purity, preparedness for battle. And he says that, that they, no lie was found in their mouths. They are blameless. They have followed the Lamb. And they're singing this victory because they have followed the Lamb. Because the, what the beast is trying to do is not just destroy them, but corrupt them. And the victory that they have won is to faithfully follow the Lamb and to not give in to the beast. The church's job is to stay true to the gospel through suffering and temptation. That's our mission. We don't have to win the battle with the beast. We have to stay on God's side. That's the point. Is to stay on God's side because the pressure is to give in, to either follow the beast or fight back against the beast with beastly ways. The beast, fighting the beast is like fighting, wrestling with a pig. Right? You both get dirty and the pig likes it. Right? You fight the beast on the beast's terms and the beast wins. Because the goal of the beast is beastliness. And as we fight back against the beast in beastly ways, we lose. And so the, the mission of the church is to stay true to the gospel through suffering and temptation. Because we're not the ones who defeat the beast. God will defeat the beast and vindicate, vindicate the church. God defeats the beast. In every, in every version in the Bible, it is God who defeats the beast. Then I saw the beast and the kings of the earth and their armies gathered together to wage war against the rider and the horse and his army. Different army, not the 144,000. And the beast was captured, and with it the false prophet who had performed the signs on his behalf, the two of them were thrown alive into the fiery lake of burning sulfur. This is Jesus and his heavenly armies facing off against all this power that has been marshaled against God's people and doing away with it forever. All of these power structures, all of this, this, this evil that has been used to corrupt humanity and to face down God's church is being destroyed and done away with forever. And God is the one who is doing it. It's the exact same thing. And, and so this is, this is the plan, is that God's people testify and stay true, and God takes care of it. God wins the battle and vindicates them. And you know how I know that's the plan? Because we're called to follow Jesus, right? And that's exactly what happened with Jesus. So the 144,000, they follow a lamb. And the lamb in the book of Revelation has been slaughtered. It's been killed, right? Because Jesus died on the cross and was resurrected. Because the plan for Jesus was that he stayed true to the gospel no matter what anyone did to him. And the full power of the beast was put on him and he didn't fight back. He took everything they could give him and he died on our behalf and God vindicated him. Right? Jesus won because God vindicated him, not because he outbeasted the beasts. And that's the message for us. We follow the Lamb. And so as we engage in battle with beasts, our job is to follow the Lamb. See, I believe that... I'm going to tell you something that I've never heard anyone say in a sermon on the end times or a talk on the end times. I've never heard anyone say this before. And that's not the only reason I'm saying it. I do happen to believe it. 
Uh, if I were to make a prediction, I would tell you that I don't think Jesus is coming back in my lifetime. Now, everyone else I've heard make a prediction, nobody ever says, like, I think he's coming back in 200 years. Right? They always say, I think he's coming back, like, next year or this date that's in my lifetime. Like, and we always predict in the near future because in our perspective, things have never been more messed up than they are right now in the moment I'm in. I personally don't see the evidence to say that he's coming back in my lifetime. I could be wrong. He could come before I finish this sermon. Right? He could. I personally don't think he's coming back. But here's the thing. The book of Revelation isn't only for the last generation of God's people. We do not hold this book in trust just so the one generation it will matter to will get it. The book of Revelation mattered to the first generation, and it matters to every generation because every one of us engages in this same struggle with the beast. We all live in the end times. That's why Paul starts, that's why he starts talking about the end times in the Bible immediately in, in the time of Jesus. We are, the next thing that happens is Jesus comes back. When he comes back, I don't know, but that's the next big thing. So all of us need to remember the main points, these conclusions for every generation of God's people. Okay? Number one, God is in control even when the beasts seem to be in charge. Whatever the beast is, however you mark the, the beast being in control in your life, whenever it feels like the, whatever makes it feel like the wheels are coming off, whether it's politics, economics, your marriage, the climate, whatever it is that makes you feel like the wheels are coming off, God is still in control. God is still in control. The second thing we need to remember, knowing that God is in control and He has allowed the beast to do what they're doing, so we need to remember that we cannot defeat the beast by acting beastly. We must follow the Lamb. The moment we start acting like beasts, we have lost. In fact, acting like beasts is pretty much the only way we can lose. It doesn't mean God loses. We know God wins in the end. But I used to tell the kids in youth group, here's the point of Revelation. We know God's going to win, and you have to choose which side you're going to be on when that happens. Like the music is going to stop and Jesus is going to, and God's going to win and you have to decide whose side you're going to be on when the music stops. And by the way, we don't know when the music is going to stop, so be on his side now and stay there. And being on God's side means following the Lamb. As soon as we give in and act like the beast, whether we're giving in to the pressure from the beast to follow and worship the beast, or whether we respond to the beast with our own beastly violence and uh, and aggression and, and anger and hate and all of that. Either way, we are not testifying to the Lamb. We need to testify to the Lamb because our ultimate mission, here is our mission. We have to do two things. Our job is to point out the beast and point to the Lamb. And when we do that, people need to be able to tell the difference. We point out the beast and we see this power, this power is not going to save us. This power, this thing we put our trust in, this destroys people. This causes destruction and corruption, and this is evil. We cannot trust in that. We cannot follow that. And then we need to be able to say, but him we can trust. Him we can follow. He gives us the hope that really lasts, that really matters. And people need to be able to tell the difference. Because if we're acting like the beast while we're pointing at the lamb, people will think the lamb is another beast, or the beast is another lamb. Our job is to testify to the difference. And that's what the book of Revelation is calling us to do. From the first generation to the last generation, that's our mission. Amen? I'm going to ask the praise team to come up. And as we 
As we close, I'm going to encourage you to consider making, taking a next step. There are a few next steps you can take. Number one, if you have not been gotten that seal on your forehead, if you don't know that you're part of the army of the Lamb that you've been chosen, you're selected and protected by God, today is the best day to make that decision and give your life to Him. Because, because that matters. That makes a difference to be on God's side and to have that purpose in your life. It doesn't mean everything's going to go the way you want it to, but it does mean that God has you, He has chosen you, and He's protecting you. So the first thing you can do is you can give your life to Jesus. You can come forward during the last song. You could talk to a staff member after church. You can get in touch with the church office. We would love to walk you through that if that's a decision you want to make. If you are following Jesus and you want to be a part of, of this local battalion of the Army of the Lamb, we would love for you to get more connected with us. And the best way you can find out what that looks like is by signing up for a Connect class. Once a month, we have a class after church. The next one's going to be August 8th. It's an hour and a half long, and we just talk to you about who we are, what we do, and how you can get plugged in. We'd love for you to be a part of that. You can sign up by checking the box on your Connect card and putting that in one of these boxes. We also encourage you to join a small group because those small groups are how we build relationships that help sustain us through the battles that we face and, the, and those moments when it feels like the beasts are really in control. So we encourage you to sign up for a small group if you're not part of one. Check that box and put it in the connection bo- in, in the boxes in the back. Finally, as soldiers of Christ, we are called to serve. And so we'd also encourage you to join a service team or, more imminently, please help out with VBS. We need people. We need people who will just be there to, to be kind to kids and to just help us make this a really good experience for them. So if you want to help with VBS, you can talk to Casey and, and uh, she'll get you signed up. And if you want to join one of our service teams, you can put that on your card. So I encourage you to consider one of those decisions as we stand and sing our final song.